Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute, Safety First in Follicular Lymphoma. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. In this podcast series, our faculty will discuss follicular lymphoma, its management, first, second, and third line treatments, including some of the newer therapies, for example, the PI3 kinase inhibitors, copanlicib and duvelisib, and the CAR T-cell inhibitors, including Axacel, Lisacel, and Tisacel, as well as bispecific antibodies such as Mosentuzumab. In this episode, Dr. Christopher Flowers and Dr. Loretta Nastapil discuss the major classes of treatment for follicular lymphoma, including outcomes and managing the expected toxicities. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash FL5. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Flowers is a professor and ad interim division head in the Division of Cancer Medicine in the Department of Lymphoma Myeloma at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. Dr. Nastapil is an associate professor also in the Department of Lymphoma Myeloma at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, Houston. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Flowers will begin our discussion. Thanks for joining me again, uh, Dr. Nastapol. We've had uh, a number of great conversations about follicular lymphoma and the ways to manage follicular lymphoma. And let's take some time now to talk uh, for each of the, the types of therapy that we can give. Uh, what are the challenges that we see in uh, managing patients, and particularly talking about the safety and toxicity uh, of each agent? So let's start first with talking about the PI3 kinase inhibitors. As you know, there have been a number of PI3 kinase inhibitors that have been approved for use in follicular lymphoma, idolisib, duvalisib, copanlisib, and umbralisib, uh, but now available on the our, our copanlisib as kind of the primary available therapy for patients with follicular lymphoma now. When you think about a PI3 kinase inhibitor, what do you think about or, or have concerns about in terms of the toxicity and what do you tell patients? The first thing you recognize is all of these agents vary somewhat in terms of how selective they are across the different subunits of the PI3 kinase enzyme. And so, for instance, copanlisib, just by its name, it's a pan-PI3 kinase inhibitor. The most of the activity is against alpha and the delta subunits. But I think that's important to recognize because that's going to shed light in terms of what are the toxicities we anticipate. And more importantly, how can you counsel patients and staff to be on the lookout and mitigate these toxicities? So one of the advantages I think about copanlisib is it's an IV formulation. So you have less of a sort of first pass through the liver. So we tend to see a little bit lower rates of uh, liver toxicity specifically, such as liver enzyme elevation. Uh, we also tend to see less in the way of diarrhea and colitis, which is a major step forward. The downside is that it does have the alpha inhibition, and so we tend to see uh, more in the way of hyperglycemia and hypertension. Now, it's always important to re recognize on the phase one study, those peak glucose levels and peak systolic pressures happened within about five to eight hours following the infusion, and we're back to baseline by 24 hours. 
But what I also think is important to recognize is those patients who have poorly controlled hypertension or poorly controlled diabetes would not have gone on those studies. And so being mindful of, again, pre-existing comorbid conditions and what impact these therapies might have in my practice for patients who are uncontrolled diabetics, it may not be a great choice to use copenlisib. Same story goes for uncontrolled um, hypertension. Now, if you can get control of it and if you can counsel patients about what to be on the lookout for, that's important. And also to not overreact if you get called uh, by someone in the infusion center about an isolated systolic pressure or an isolated uh, glucose value. And so again, I think awareness is key. I think counseling patients on what, what would be out of the norm and what to alert us to uh, is also key. I think with the other agents, partly why they're not available to us anymore, there were other toxicities that uh, were worrisome, such as infection, including opportunistic infections, such as PJP pneumonia, CMV reactivation, uh, colitis, that if it went unmanaged uh, could lead to bowel perforation um, and low rates of pneumonitis, for instance. I think as we've gotten more experience with the immune-mediated toxicities associated with the checkpoint inhibitors, most oncologist offices are, are quite equipped at addressing some of these itises, for instance. But again, being aware of them is key in making sure that that first line of defense, that office member who's going to take that first call, knows when to escalate the call to provider and what to advise the patient. Uh, so unique toxicities associated with the PI3 kinase inhibitors uh, to be aware of and, and particularly to be on the lookout as patients stay on therapy longer. I think those are all important points, uh, both those uh, kinds of toxicities that we see in the acute uh, setting, right, as patients are getting infusion, where you know most of those toxicities are around uh, hypertension uh, and hyperglycemia that are infusion-related and typically go away after the infusion starts. Uh, but more importantly, uh, for many of our patients who are on longer-term therapy, the challenges that we can see uh, later in cycles of therapy with the itises, as you described, and the pneumonitis and the colitis. From my perspective, you know, some of the things that you, you mentioned that are really key is to making sure uh, that the patient uh, and uh, their caregivers and uh, their uh, providers all are very aware uh, of those, uh, those later toxicities. Uh, because those are some that can sometimes uh, be more challenging to manage when they're uh, not as well recognized and they're allowed to persist. So for instance, when someone has diarrhea uh, that first comes on, that the immediate response is not to give Imodium uh, or to uh, try and control the diarrhea, but actually to evaluate it, and making sure that it's not something that is progressing towards uh, colitis as an immediate cause. When uh, you see these uh, immune-related toxicities, how do you think through the strategy for managing them and what sorts of things do you recommend to your patients? The first thing is we want to hold the drug and then we want to explore all the potential underlying causes because, again, it could have actually be uh, immune-mediated toxicity as a result of drug, but it could also be other things and other things like infection. And the two situations that I probably the most nervous about is diarrhea and shortness of breath and cough. And as you mentioned, the colitis is, is a situation that we get particularly nervous uh, because diarrhea happens so regularly among a number of agents that we utilize to treat oncology patients. 
um, Moody was one of the first things that people are advised to do. And so being aware, particularly with the PI3 kinase inhibitors, and particularly that later onset diarrhea that happens beyond the first few months of initiating therapy, uh, asking patients, how many bowel movements a day are you having? What is the consistency or the quality of the stool? Um, and stopping drug, investigating the underlying cause. So potentially even setting up patients for colonoscopies. If it's pretty severe, doesn't hurt anybody to initiate steroids while we're getting the workup uh, initiated and completed. Uh, again, if, if, if the suspicion is high that this is an immune-mediated uh, colitis. Similar story for pneumonitis. So again, concurrent infection with pneumonia or PJP pneumonitis can be really challenging uh, to distinguish. So awareness, uh, monitoring the oxygen saturation. So a drop in the pulse ox by more than 5% from baseline can be one of the first signs that patients are developing uh, pneumonitis. And again, holding drug, exploring the etiology, getting them in to see a pulmonologist and set up for bronchoscopy uh, are important things to think through. If you're worried about pneumonitis, uh, that's drug toxicity related, initiating steroids is something that we might consider ensuring that we also have at least been covering for uh, opportunistic infections. Oftentimes these patients are gonna be on PJP prophylaxis. And the last thing I'll say is just making sure you're aware that they could have CMV reactivation, checking uh, CMV titers. And again, I think most importantly is, is just awareness. Really all uh, fantastic points. And I think, you know, some of the you know, important key takeaways from that are, are when you see late toxicity with these PI3 kinase inhibitors, that think about uh, the kinds of itises that uh, may, may occur. They can also occur early too, uh, but uh, I think when we see them uh, later, they're ones that we need to pay particular attention. So let's turn uh, next from one form of immunotherapy to a much newer form of immunotherapy that is now available to uh, all of our patients uh, with follicular lymphoma, and that's CAR T-cell therapy. First, uh, just explain what is a CAR T-cell therapy, uh, and then uh, how does uh, the, that uh, mechanism of action affect the kinds of toxicities that we see uh, for patients? Most everyone is now aware of CAR T-cell therapy, but essentially what this is, is you're utilizing patients' own T-cells in either with a retrovirus or a lintrovirus, introducing genetic alteration to those autologous T-cells that they then express an extracellular receptor that targets CD19, which is important for targeting B-cell malignancies because CD19 should be present on all follicular lymphoma cells. They do differ in terms of their transmembrane hinge region, but more importantly, they're intracellular co-signaling um, molecules. So these are second-generation cars that are currently FDA-approved. That means they have two co-stimulatory molecules. Axicaptogene cellulosal or AxiCell utilizes a CD19, CD28 uh, construct, which leads to rapid uh, release of cytokines, uh, rapid proliferation, and pretty stark increased area under the curve following cell infusion that peaks between day seven and 14, and then also pretty rapid clearance of those cells. Uh, but as a result, cytokine release syndrome, which I'll spend some time talking about, is quite frequent, and even neurotoxicity we tend to see with AxiCell. With lysocaptogene merilusal or tisogen leclusal, these are 41 bb constructs. Again, all three target CD19. 
Tisogen leclusor T-cell is currently also FDA approved for follicular lymphoma, and the lysocell study is, is completed enrollment, but not yet reported out. The differences with those constructs is with the 4MBB, you have a more blunted sort of expansion and area under the curve, but better persistence. We've been arguing now for many years as to which of those features is more important. I think it clearly explains why we see differences in the acute toxicity that occurs within the first two weeks. So with AxiCell, you tend to see more rapid onset of cytokine release syndrome, higher rates of neurotoxicity, uh, whereas it's a little bit more delayed with the 4MBB constructs. Now, again, is that persistence of that CAR important? Uh, for some lymphomas, I'd say if you eradicate all the lymphoma cells in the first two weeks, no, doesn't have to persist at all. But for something like follicular lymphoma, where we know these patients are going to have later relapses, maybe persistence would be an advantage. And so as of right now, we don't have any head-to-head -head comparisons. We, both, we have two options, AxiCell and TisaCell. They're approved in the same indication. And so toxicity usually does inform which of the two I will pursue. Very low rates of grade three or higher CRS and neurotoxicity uh, with TISA cell. Interestingly, lower rates with AxiCell and follicular than what we see in large cell and mantle cell. So it does suggest that the underlying disease biology also impacts uh, what we see with these T cells when we, you know, infuse this live therapy into a human being. Um, but but higher rates than than in my experience you would see with uh, T cell. That's an excellent description of CAR T cell therapies and the you know, the overall uh, new kinds of toxicities that we see here. Let's talk a little bit more uh, about uh, those two major kinds of toxicities: cytokine release syndrome uh, and uh, and uh, so-called ICANs or the neurologic toxicities that we see. Uh, with uh, CAR T cell uh, therapies. So cytokine uh, release syndrome tends to be an acute uh, toxicity that, that we see after the infusion of the CAR uh, T cells that peaks in the ways that you described. And I think you really nicely described how that relates uh, to each of the different constructs with the co-stimulatory domains uh, for each of the, the products. That's typically something that we see for patients during the time uh, where they're hospitalized that may uh, result in lowering of their blood pressure, uh, may sometimes result in an ICU stay, may look like a severe infection, and so requires uh, uh, management uh, associated with that uh, in the ICU, uh, but is also uh, something that it, uh, tends to be self-limited. Can you say a little bit more about how you think through the management of, uh, of cytokine release syndrome? And then how do you think through the management of ICANS uh, for a patient uh, who's undergoing CAR T-cell? Yeah, what I used to always tell patients and even outside providers is you don't need to worry too much about how to manage it. This should be managed at certified centers where all of the staff, from the ER physician through the inpatient um, APPs and nurses and rounding attendings uh, are the ones that are going to be skilled and manage this. But that's not going to be true anymore as bispecifics roll out. And so cytokine release syndrome, as you mentioned, is sort of that proof of principle that you're activating T cells that then secrete cytokines to bring over more T cells and other immune uh, cells. And so just by engaging T cells, you're going to see signs of cytokine release syndrome. And then the severity is going to be impacted by how many malignant B cells are engaging those T cells, how sort of fit or exhausted those T cells are, uh, how frequently you're going to be dosing patients and the dose of the T cell engager. And so this is something that we probably all will need to be skilled out in the next few years. Um, and again, 
the expectations for patients is that this generally has onset within the first two weeks following CAR T-cell therapy and within the first one to two cycles of bispecific antibodies. And the severity does look a lot like septic shock in a sense or capillary leak syndrome where if patients have issues maintaining blood pressure or oxygen levels, they're gonna to need to be in a hospital setting and sometimes even in the ICU. Fortunately, a lot of our mitigating strategies, either blocking the receptors those cytokines act on or utilizing corticosteroids to reduce the number of T cells that are circulating have been effective strategies. So it's very rare for patients to die as a result of the acute toxicity. Again, not 0% risk, but we're talking about less than 5% chance that would be true. And so I do think that uh, with the trained staff, with uh, patient understanding, telling the family members, you know, fever is the most common thing we see. That may be fever alone. It may be followed by hypotension, trouble breathing, but we will be skilled at managing that. I think the challenge though is the neurotoxicity. And the reason why that's a challenge is less harder to define uh, both in terms of onset and the symptoms. So it's more of a spectrum. Some patients will have mild tremor and slight headache, but otherwise their brain is functioning normally to full-blown delirium-like picture where they may not be able to answer questions appropriately. They may say things that are completely inappropriate for their situation, or they may even be in a situation where they're not opening their eyes, they're not responding to external stimulus at all. And so obviously that can be much more alarming to patients and family members and even to staff because um, it's scary when you see someone who's conversing with you normally in the morning and then in the afternoon uh, can no longer function. What I remind patients and family members, this is reversible for the vast majority of patients. Oftentimes we're using things like corticosteroids or again, cytokine blocking agents uh, to try and reduce the number of cells that are circulating to try and get control of the system. And then we put patients on seizure prevention medications. Uh, oftentimes we're managing this with a multidisciplinary team with neurologists, um, oftentimes infectious disease experts, because that may be complicating the fact the picture as well. Uh, fortunately, this is much less frequent than cytokine release syndrome, but is one of those situations where having a skilled uh, staff could probably be very, very helpful. We've talked a fair amount about cytokine release syndrome and uh, ICANs or neurologic toxicity, which are relatively unique toxicities of uh, these immune-based therapies. Are there any other uh, kinds of side effects that you can see uh, with CAR T-cell therapies or things that patients should think about both uh, during their therapy and beyond their therapy? One of the other more common toxicities is cytopenias. Uh, now we're all expecting low blood counts in the first two weeks because we use lymphocyte depleting chemotherapy to reduce the number of uh, native T cells. So there's not competition or elimination of these cars as they're infused into patients. And so that's expected. We use cyclophosphamide fludarabine to drop the white blood cell count platelets and red blood cells go down as a result as well. And usually by two weeks out, they've natured and they've started to recover. 
But the area that's becoming a little bit more challenging in my experience is by around day 30, you sort of plateau and you can even see decline in cytopenias or they never fully recover. And that's what we call persistent cytopenias that extend beyond the first 30 days. Uh, so that can result in risk of infection, fatigue, bleeding complications. And so being mindful that cytopenias happens in about 20 to maybe 40% of patients and they can clearly exist beyond the first 30 days. And we would manage them just like any patient who's undergoing uh, cytoreductive therapy with growth factors and transfusion support and uh, monitoring for risk of infection. But the other thing that can be masked in that is HLH, or, um, which can manifest also like cytokine release syndrome. So they'll have fevers, they'll have cytopenias, they may even have neurologic complications. That's a rare situation, but has been described in patients who've undergone cellular therapy and, and warrants attention. Usually their inflammatory markers are gonna be profoundly high. Ferritin's in the 10 to 50,000 range. Uh, you can have triglycerides that are elevated. Uh, so there are other factors that may help sort of clue you in to that occurring. Um, and then infections. I think infection is the one thing that we're always on the lookout because these patients are gonna have oftentimes um, profound B cell depletion that lasts for months. And so we generally have them on prophylaxis for PJP and um, Valtrex um, for shingles prophylaxis and HSV prophylaxis. And that goes on for at least a year, sometimes longer, at least until their CD4 count is above 200. You gave a really nice description of the kinds of things that we see for patients uh, after CAR T cell uh, therapy and you know, both in terms of the expected toxicities during the, the, the regimen and, uh, and beyond. Uh, and in particular, that uh, B cell aplasia, I think, is uh, something that is important to keep in mind uh, for patients with CAR T cell therapy. That's an expected effect because the CD19 target that we see on the lymphoma cells is also on the normal B cells. And so uh, those ideally are also wiped out for a prolonged period of time uh, and uh, may uh, require very prolonged uh, uh, management uh, to uh, prevent the kinds of infections, may reduce the responsiveness uh, to vaccines, uh, given that uh, vaccines uh, depend on both a T cell and B cell response uh, uh, oftentimes, and may require uh, support with uh, immunoglobulins. So in just our last few minutes, uh, that turned to a, a new therapy, bispecific antibody therapy, and bispecifics uh, are also immunotherapies where we uh, can see uh, cytokine release syndrome uh, and uh, ICANS. How is cytokine release syndrome uh, and ICANS, how are those the same in bispecifics and how are they different? So I think one key important aspect is we generally are not using chemotherapy as lymphocyte depletion prior to the infusion of bispecifics. They're much more readily available. We don't have to undergo manufacturing, collection of T-cells. Uh, so there are some key differences in terms of how we administer these, but they are also T-cell engagers. And so they generally will engage the tumor antigen and activate T-cells. And so cytokine release syndrome is one of the most common toxicities we see across all of these CD20, CD3 targeting bispecifics. Fortunately, we tend to see it much more commonly in the first cycle 
most of these agents undergo dose ramp up where you start at a very low dose with the first infusion, slightly higher dose with the second infusion, and you get to full dose by the third infusion. And those infusion are usually separated by a weak interval. Uh, we'll utilize corticosteroids as uh, prophylaxis with many of these cell infusions, which we generally don't do with CAR T cell therapy. And some of them are also administered as a subcutaneous route, uh, which leads to more blunted absorption. And with these strategies, we tend to see very low rates of grade two or higher cytokine release syndrome. Most will be grade one. Again, not impossible to have higher grade CRS, but most will be grade one, which generally is just fever. Neurotoxicity or ICANS is also very infrequent uh, with these agents. Again, can be observed, but not nearly to the degree we see with CAR T cell therapy and most of the time confined to the first one to two cycles. Well, this has been yet another wonderful discussion about follicular lymphoma, uh, and I'd like to conclude by saying you know, this has uh, really been a whirlwind tour, but uh, quite a summary of the kinds of toxicities that we see uh, for the kinds of agents that we use in later lines of therapy for patients with follicular lymphoma, and hopefully it's been helpful in understanding why those toxicities might occur related to the mechanisms of action uh, for each of these drugs and ways to be able to manage uh, through uh, those toxic uh, effects. So uh, thank you again, uh, Dr. Nastapol, for another engaging discussion and look forward to talking to you on our next and final podcast. It's been fun. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash FL5. Look for all of the episodes in the series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today. Music